Good morning. My name is Josh Walker. If you guys don't know me, I'm, I'm an elder here at Cornerstone and uh, about probably 10 pounds heavier than I was six weeks ago. <laughs> Anyone else resonate with that feeling? I feel like, man, you start with Thanksgiving and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. It's like piles of food and you can't make cookies just for you. You've got to make them, I mean, just for other people. You've got to make them for yourself as well. You know, a couple of weeks ago, my son looked at me and he said, you know, you know, Dad, in a lot of other cultures, you'd be considered rich. I was like, wow, I'm glad I've taught you about other cultures so you can insult me in nice backhanded ways. That was his way of calling me fat, if you didn't catch that, by the way. Like, well, gee, thank you, son. Just wait till you're not 13 and you'll find out what it's like. Metabolism slows down a bit as we get older, as you all know. So this, uh, this morning, we get to... Uh, conclude the story that we've been telling through this Advent season, the, the greatest story ever told. We get to bring it to a conclusion and bring it to an end, and it's just one of the most exciting things for me. I get so excited about um, where things are headed and the fact that we get to know the end of the story, and we get to live in light of that. It's one of the most exciting things for me to, to talk about, to think about. Um, I think it's life-transforming to think about the end of the story, the conclusion as we get there. But you better put on your seatbelts. We've got a lot of scriptures we're going to cover. We've got a lot of distance we're going to go. Um, if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand. Someone will bring one for you. Um, but we're going to be moving through scripture and be in a number of different places this morning. Now, as we get here towards the end of the story, I think we all need to start by acknowledging that currently as we look around, like we've, we've talked about all this resolution, the promise that, that God had made and the resolution that he was going to bring, but we have to look around and realize that the way things currently stand isn't the way things are supposed to be. Right? I don't care what you believe, where you've come from this morning, you all have to acknowledge that the reality is that when we look around at this world, there's something wrong with it, right? Sure, there's beauty and there's amazement and there's all kinds of wonderful things. There's love, but even in all of those things, it's always tinged with something, tinged with a darkness, tinged with something that isn't quite right. As a, as a friend of mine once said, she was uh, talking and she was saying, this is what she often said to her kids. She said, you know, even life at its best is not enough. Right? We're, we were made for eternity, that this life, even at its best, is not enough. That even when life is going the best that it possibly can, it isn't enough for us. There's still a longing for us. There's still something that is more there for us. And it's even worse when things aren't going well. Right? You know how the, the post-Christmas letdown there's that, all that excitement, and especially, remember this as a kid, all that excitement for all the toys and all the presents and the things you get to open, and then you open them, and you're playing with them, and by about a week later, you know, some of them are broken, and they're all just kind of in the pile, and you've kind of forgotten, right? It's just the, the luster wears off so quickly, and I feel like sometimes life's exactly like that, right? That the luster wears off so quickly, and we just, we just feel like, you know, why do things keep seeming to end and seeming to change, and it's because we we're made for eternity, right? Every time something ends, something good ends, there's a part of us that just breaks, like, I wish that didn't have to end. We're, we spend a wonderful time with some friends and some family. We have a wonderful meal, and when it ends, how do we feel? Just, I wish that could go on forever, right? We, we get to the end of a good book, and well, at least for me, I think sometimes I, I want to get to the end because you want to hear the story, but at the same time, you're sad when you get to the end because now the story's over. Right? And so there's this longing in all of us to, to have a never-ending story, 
to be a part of a never-ending story, to be a part of something that goes on for eternity. And I think that as we, we think about how the things are still wrong, especially at this time of the year, it becomes very poignant for us. That for many of you, you have people that you've lost, and the holidays bring that, that poignant sense of loss to you in such a strong way. And, and you're going through this time, and on the one hand, there's joy, and, and you're trying to find joy, but at the same time, there's this sense of loss and of something that's missing. And as we come to the end of the year, what we often do is we like to look back over the year. And I know there are many of you that look back over the course of this year, and, and you regret things that you did. You look back and things that happened to you have hurt you and, and you look back with these regrets and the sadness at the things that have come and we realize that we just weren't made for this world, right? This is a difficult world for us to live in. If you're dealing with that kind of loss or regret, here's the good news that I have for you this morning. This isn't the end of the story. This isn't the end of the story, and that makes all the difference in the world. To go back, let's recap where we are. That at the beginning, God created everything good, a perfect setting to put himself on display through all of his creation, but especially through mankind. As he said, he made them image bearers. I like to put that as God displayers. That's what he made us to do, to be God displayers, and and he created us that way. And his, His intention through starting a garden was to plant a seed that he intended to grow into something magnificent. Right, that he, he planted Adam and Eve there in the midst of the garden, says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and rule over it. Right? There was all of this that was started there that was intended to grow into something wonderful. It was all in a perfect state of what the Bible would call shalom, the Hebrew word for peace, but it's more than what we think of as peace. It's the idea of the situation where relationships are all functioning just the way they should, our relationship with other humans, our relationship with God, our relationship with creation, and they're all functioning just the way that they should that produces amazing flourishing, produces great joy. That's what shalom is, is that situation where those things are all just working the way that they're supposed to. And all of that was created perfectly in the garden, and then things go south in a hurry, Right? All of a sudden, they find out they're naked. <laughs> Try to tell Terry, it rhymes with snake. And he's like, rhymes with snake? He didn't really say that. I'm just teasing him. And we know Adam and Eve disobeyed God. And when they did so, they brought sin and chaos into the world. And that sin and chaos that came into the world affected everything. And it brought difficulties and trials and tribulations. And ultimately, it brought death. And death began to reign over the earth. It affected all of creation. But then the promise came. Starting immediately after that conflict, God begins to make a promise and set his plan in motion to make things right. Not just to fix it for humans, but to fix everything that broke. You see, his, his restoration plan, his redemption plan, isn't just to save us, it's to restore everything that he intended from the beginning. You see, that seed that he planted in the garden, he still wants to grow into full fruition. That plan that he started there and what he wanted out of it is still his goal. And so he sets his plan in motion to make it all right, to redeem it all. And he does that by making a promise to a man, well, first of all, to Adam and Eve, right? He tells them, look, this isn't going to be the end. This is what's going to happen. There's going to be a snake crusher that's going to come. Then he tells Abraham, he says, Abraham, you from your seed is going to be the one who 
comes and blesses all the families of the earth. He will be the one that restores and makes things all right. And then he tells David, he makes a promise to David, that David, it will be one that will come from your descendants that will reign on your throne as the perfect king. Right? And we see all these promises which then led us to the fulfillment in Jesus, the hero. Right? As Christian talked about last week, that the, the hero Jesus, the one he came, he took on human flesh to rescue us. He showed us what kind of king he is by healing the sick, feeding the poor, casting out demons, having dominion over all of those things, bringing back some of that shalom that was lost in the garden. And then in order to accomplish full redemption, he died as a sacrifice for sins in the place of those who deserved it. And then three days later, rose from the dead and ascended to his father. And that brings us to the part of the story that we live in now. That after Jesus ascended and before the end of the story comes, that's where we live now. That Jesus left his people, the church, that's us who follow him. He left us here to proclaim his message The message of him being the king who rules over all creation and he has come to redeem and to call all people into submission to him as the wonderful king. He's left us to proclaim that message to the ends of the earth. That's where we live right now. But here's the crazy part, right? Most stories, you don't get to know the ending before you go through it. But this story, we actually get to know the ending. Not only we get to know the ending, but the ending is the part that we're supposed to live in light of because the ending changes everything right when you know the end of something it changes the way that you view that thing right if some of you might be you know recording like a football game today and if I happen to tell you the score of the game before you watched it what's going to happen you'd be happy about that yeah it kind of wreck it for you right knowing the ending changes it takes all the tension out of it right it it takes all the the anxiety and the tension are they going to make this work I already know the ending I already know the score right if if you know uh, uh, what's going to happen in a movie before, you guys have our, I can tell you Star Wars stuff now, right? Yeah. I'm just kidding, I wouldn't do that to you. My son accidentally got a spoiler before we saw it. And, it. and it was something that afterwards he and I talked about it. A key point in the movie was completely changed. His experience of it was completely different than mine. Because I was uncertain of what was going to happen. He knew what was going to happen. Right, that when you know the end of the story, it takes that anxiety, it takes that wondering out of it. And for us to know the end of our story takes the anxiety and the worry out of today because we know where it's going to end. That for those of us that know Jesus Christ, we have been transformed and he will. It's because he lives, one day we will live. And it's not just one day, but it starts now and goes all the way through See, I've got a quote here from from Tim Keller in his book, King's Cross. This is what he says. He says, why is it so hard to do the right thing if you know it's going to cost you money, reputation, and maybe even your life? Why is it so hard to face your own death or the death of loved ones? Those are difficult questions, aren't they? He says, it's so hard because we think this broken world is the only world we're ever going to have. It's easy to feel as if this money is the only wealth we'll ever have, as if this body is the only body we'll ever have. But if Jesus is risen, then your future is so much more beautiful and so much more certain than that. You see, the end of the story, knowing the end of the story, changes everything. 
The thing that grieves me as I look at my own life and I look at so many of our lives is that we don't live in light of the end of the story. We live just like he says, as if this world, this broken world that we're a part of is all that there's going to be, as if this body is all that we're ever going to have. And we don't live in light of the end of the story. We get in what I call the pit of now. And we get stuck in it, mired in the pit of now and of everything that we see happening right now. And there's two sides of that. On, on the one side, that we get stuck in wanting things now in the sense of good things. Right? We say, I don't, I don't want the end of the story to come because I still have a bunch of stuff that I want to do. Right? I, I, I still want to get married. I still want to have kids. I still want to see this. I want to go there. I want to have grandkids. There's, there's all these things. I don't want the end of the story to come yet I, you know, because there's still a bunch of really good things that I still want to see happen now. And then there's another way we get stuck in the, the pit of now, and that, that is just when we start looking at all of the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties. Like, how many of you have had some difficult things happen this year? Right? I mean, some hard things. It's a tough year, right? Every year's a tough year. This one wasn't tougher than usual. It's just tough. It may have been tougher for you than usual. But it's hard, and sometimes in the midst of that, we get stuck in the now, right? We're just looking at all of that, and we're looking at all that stuff, and we're thinking about all the things that we want to get done. And, and the thing that lifts us out of that pit is to look at the hope of new creation, what we have in the future, and to be reminded of it. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, we need to remember the future. Kind of a weird thought, right? But because God tells us, we need to remember what the future is so that it will change how we live now. In Romans chapter 8, this is what Paul says. He gives us the perspective, and he says a lot of different things here, but in Romans 8 verse 18, he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Right? He says that the now, the pit of now, the present sufferings, he, he doesn't even say that they don't compare with what's to come. He says it's not even worth trying to compare it. It's so different. He says, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. You see, it's not just us that's going to be redeemed. All of creation is, and creation longs for that. In verse 20, the creation, for the creation was subjected to frustration, right? Back at when the conflict began. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage. You see, God's restoration and redemption is for all of creation. Be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. You see, creation is waiting for its redemption, and in that redemption it will be that, once again, that perfect place for the flourishing of humanity, the God displayers that then in turn put God on display and bring him glory. That's where we're headed. That's a glorious thing. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Do you groan? I mean, there's times I just groan. I mean, the body starts to break down and we just can't wait for it. And there's, there's a physical sense of that, right? My wife, she's 43 years old and she just found out she has a cataract. And I'm like, ha, you're old. I'm not making fun of her because everyone always thinks she's like 20 years younger than me. It's like, she's five months older. Come on, give me a break. She's got a cataract. I'm like, ha, you're old. 
Week later, I find out I got arthritis in my shoulder. Like, <laughs> back at you, and they can fix my cataract. Can't fix your arthritis. Right? The groaning. You may be young and not be feeling some of that physical groaning, but trust me, the older you get, the more the groaning starts to happen. But in a sense, that pales in comparison to the other groaning, the spiritual, the the sense of these things just aren't right. And the more that you live, the more it accumulates this sense of there's just so much injustice, there's so much wrong, there's so much pain, there's so much hurt. And we groan for that time when all of creation will be set free from that and things will be made to right. That's where the groaning really hits for us. He says in verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Right, That is our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, the redemption of creation. In this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. But who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Peter's going to say a similar thing a little bit later. We're going to see that Peter says you need to wait patiently for it. That, that That's what we need to be doing right now. Now, as we get to this point in the story, let me remind you of some of the promises that have been not fulfilled yet. Right in Genesis 12, as we said earlier, he told Abraham that one of your descendants is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Have all the families of the earth heard about Jesus and been blessed yet? No. That's why we're still sending out people to places that haven't heard because they haven't heard yet. He told David that one is going to reign on your throne with righteousness forever. Have we seen that yet? No. There's no king reigning in Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 9, as it talked about this son that was given, right? The the passage we love to think about at uh, Christmas, at Advent time. But it says about him that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Hasn't happened yet. The son's been given, but the king isn't fully reigning. There's still something that we're waiting for in Isaiah chapter 11 as it talks again about this one who is going to come from David, from Jesse. talks about how he's going to reign. He's going to judge with righteousness, that the, the poor are going to be judged with righteousness. It says he'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Do we see the poor and the meek being lifted up and judged righteously now? No, they're suffering, right? We don't see any of that. And he gets to, in verse 6 in Isaiah chapter 11, he talks about how the wolf will dwell with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the young goat. He just talks about how all of creation is going to be completely changed, right? To the point where even the, the internal workings of animals are going to change. It says, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. Carnivores will be turned into omnivores. Sorry, herbivores. Get, get that right. Carnivores will be turned into herbivores. Have we seen that happen? I don't, I don't see lions living on, you know, straw. They're not over there eating hay, chewing the cud with the cows. Just, it's not happening, right? These promises have not yet been fulfilled. And what it points to us is that there's a time coming in the future. And so to get there, what I'm going to do, what I want to do is I want to summarize basically the events that are going to happen between now and the end. That when we, we get to new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, that's the end of this story. The thing I love to tell people that's so exciting to me, though, is that this story we've been telling, this greatest story ever told, is nothing but the introduction to the real story. And we don't even know what that story is going to be like. 
Right, that this story begins at creation and heads us all the way to new creation, to the new heavens and the new earth. But there, what's going to happen out there, we have no idea even how magnificent and wonderful it's going to be. That as great as this story is, there's an even greater story that's waiting for us. But what I want to do is quickly summarize for you the events that are going to happen between now and as we get to the end. Now, the thing is, Christians disagree about a lot of this stuff. The sequencing, the events... They don't really disagree about all the stuff that's going to happen, maybe one or two things, but they agree on most of the things that are going to happen. I'm going to tell you the way that most of us around here understand it, okay? And we don't need to quibble about sequencing and all that kind of stuff, but just so you understand the way we get from here to there, right? How do we get from where things currently are, not good, to where the new heavens and the new earth and you got lions eating grass, right? How do we get there? So here's how it starts. First of all, it says that Jesus will return bodily just as he left, right? In Acts, when he ascends, and they're all standing there, right? The angel comes along and says, hey, why are you looking? He'll come back one day, but he's going to come back in the same way that he went. So Jesus will bodily return to the earth. We are awaiting, that's the next event, Jesus' return to the earth. Now, if you turn to Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to kind of walk through there because I think most of the main pieces are there for you in Revelation chapter 20 and into 21. And there's all kinds of crazy cosmic stuff going on here. Just kind of walk through the main pieces with me. Revelation chapter 20. John writes down the vision that he has. He says this, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the first thing after Jesus comes, it says that he is going to bind Satan. And that the first resurrection, that those who who have followed Christ as king will all be then resurrected and reign with him for a thousand years. And we believe that that's in fulfillment of the Davidic promise and of the promises of the Old Testament that Jesus would come, that one from the descendants of David would come and he would reign and he will reign from Jerusalem. Now there's some people that think that it's not going to quite happen like that. That's fine. I think that's the way that it's going to happen as it plays out. If it plays out differently, I think we're all going to be okay with it. Right, but he says there's, there's a first resurrection implying that there's going to be a, a second resurrection. Right, so we see Jesus' return, we see the first resurrection, and we see Jesus reigning during what we call the millennium, a thousand-year period of time. And then there in verse 7, we get to the final defeat of Satan, our great enemy, that, right, that conflict that begins even before the garden, right? Satan shows up in the garden. It's like, where did he come from? That conflict that started even before there comes to a final culmination here. Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison, will come out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth. And it goes through, and then uh, in verse 9, 
But the fire came down from heaven and consumes them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That our enemy is finally vanquished. That our enemy who, right, we we live in this time where it's like, well, is Jesus king? It's kind of like, well, yes. Right, we live in this kind of in-between time where we have the God of this world who does all of this stuff, and then we have Jesus, and we live at, at the intersection of that. And what it's saying is that what's going to happen is there'll no longer be just that intersection, but Jesus will come and will vanquish him. So there will no longer be the kingdom of the world. There will no longer be the kingdom of the evil one. It will all be the kingdom of our Lord. And then we see the resurrection of all, that it was implied up in in verse uh, 5 with the first resurrection and the rest. But then you get down to verse 11. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. No place was found for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So after the final defeat of Satan, we see everyone is now resurrected. Everyone's given a resurrected body. And that God sits in judgment. And that in his judgment, there's one book and then a set of books. And the set of books contain our deeds, everything that we've done. And then there's the book of life, which is all those who have trusted Christ, have trusted him and followed him as king. And that if your name is there, he says, I don't need to worry about these books. You're fine. But as he sits in judgment, he says, if your name's not in there, then we're going to look at what you did. And what we find out is that there's none that's found worthy on the basis of their deeds. There's none of us that are worthy on the basis of what we've done And if our name isn't in the book of life, then we're cast into the lake of fire. And just as a word of warning for all of us, I mean, this isn't fun, right? I I don't love like fire and brimstone preaching. I don't want to scare you. But this is the reality of what the way the story comes to a culmination is that justice is done. And the reality is all of you want justice. You just don't want it for you. Right? When you see someone who's done awful things, committed awful atrocities, you say, that, that's not fair. They need justice. God, why, you know, if there's a God up there, why hasn't he done something about this? And then when he does, but you're the one on the receiving end, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're supposed to be merciful. And he says, yes, I am merciful if you trust in Christ and submit to him. He is the one that is your king and can rescue you. Then we get to verse 21. And after all of that is done, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth, first earth passed away and the sea was no more. Turn with me back to Second Peter chapter 3. We're going to come back to Revelation 21 in a minute.
Now, sometimes we don't like to think about it. We don't like to talk about what's to come in the future, but look what Peter does. Peter says, look, this is something that's so important. That's why I've written to you about it a couple of times. Second Peter chapter 3. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Are you saying that you... I want to stir up by way of reminder that these are the things that are still coming in the future. And he says, part of why I want to tell you that is because I know that there's going to be people around who are going to think this stuff is stupid. In fact, I'm pretty sure there's some that are here this morning that you hear that stuff. You hear about Jesus coming back, people being raised from the dead, God sitting in judgment, lake of fire, and you're like, yeah, whatever. None of that's going to happen. You know, what are you doing believing all that old stuff? And he says, look, this is, this is what Peter said almost 2,000 years ago in verse 3. He says, knowing this first of all, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Right? Come on. Things have been, the, things have been this way. They've been this way for a long time. They're still going to be this way. You guys are crazy thinking that it's ever going to change. He says, no, but they forget this one thing. Verse 5, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. In other words, no, it hasn't always been this way. There was a moment when there was nothing but God and then there was everything. And God created everything and so things change there and they're going to change again in the future and he says that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished but by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly right justice is coming redemption and restoration is coming and he talks about how the patience of the lord says look a day and a thousand years to god's no different Right? I mean, for us, we can't, we can't even comprehend maybe 40, 50, 60, 70 years, much less 300 years, 1,000 years. I mean, think of how much has happened in 1,000 years. We can't comprehend anything like that. And what Peter says is, for God, they're the same. Like, don't, you, you look at this like it's been a long time. Oh, it's been so long. It's all been the same. Maybe it's not really going to happen. You start doubting. He says, look, it hasn't been that long. Yeah, Jesus died a couple of thousand years. To God, it's like a couple of days. It really hasn't been that long. And then he says, and remember this, the reason he's waiting is because he wants to continue to draw people to himself. He wants to bring them to repentance. So he says there in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I'm thankful he waited till I came. If I have to wait patiently for the end of the story because there's more that he wants to draw to repentance, more that he wants to transform, then I will wait patiently. And then look what he says in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, like, okay, look, the heavens and the earth are going to be wiped away, burned up, restored into this new heavens, new earth. In light of that, if all this is true, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. 
He says, look, if, if you know that's the way things are going, it ought to change the way you live today. In fact, it's the only way, I would submit to you, it's the only way that we can live the way that he wants us to live today. In holiness, that is separation set apart, not participating in all the things of the world, um, being in, in that intersection where we're among the world, but we're not just like them. We live differently because we know a different end of the story than they do. Right? In holiness and being set apart, and godliness, godliness, and it's putting God on display, right? Showing his character. That's what godliness is, is showing his character to those around us. That's what we ought to be doing because of this. And he says we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We wait for it. We, we hasten it by sharing the message with others because he wants to bring them to repentance. Because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right, that longing that we have within all of us, the, the sense of this isn't right and there's something that's better. He says, there is a day where all of that is coming. All of these events then bring us, well, he says in verse 14, just one last thing. Therefore, since you're waiting for these, beloved, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Right, how ought we to live? In holiness and in godliness and waiting patiently being diligent, diligent, working hard to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Peace isn't often the way we think about Christians nowadays, is it? We tend to be angry, frustrated, causing problems. I think he wants us to live a little differently in light of it. Sometimes we get that way because we're consumed with the now and we forget that our king is coming, he's going to make it all right. right. We don't have to worry about who's going to be the next president. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. Does it matter in light of eternity? Not really. Right? Don't hear me wrong. I'm saying, oh, we just kind of you know, forget about all that stuff. But put it in right perspective. Right? See, it isn't about saying that those things aren't important, things of this world aren't important. It's about reprioritizing and realizing that Jesus and what he's doing is first, and everything else is a distant second. It's not even a close second, it's a distant second. And putting that stuff in perspective is what changes us now. If I were to have one verse that summarizes what's happening in all the things from now until the new heavens and the new earth, it would be Revelation eleven fifteen. The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and this is what he declares. He says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That, that's what's happening. We don't have to niggle over all the little pieces and how's that going to happen. This is what's happening. The kingdom of the world, which is in rebellion against him, the kingdom of our Lord, he's coming in and wiping it out and taking it over and restoring it all to be wonderful and amazing. You see, we have to stop thinking about life as something that just happens between now and when we die. Right? We tend to evaluate what we're doing and, and what we're hoping to do in light of our 70 years, 40 years, 80 years, whatever it is, right? Or whatever you got left. As followers of Jesus, we ought to see our life as extending out into eternity. 
not ending when we die. And what does that do in terms of changing your perspective? It changes everything, right? You stop asking, how am I going to be able to do this? And instead you say, when should I do this? What should be my priority for now between now and when I transition through death? What should be my priority during this time period versus what do I put off until then? You see, once you start to realize that you're going to live forever, it starts to take a lot of the bucket list off the, out of the bucket. Right? It's like, well, I don't really have to worry about doing that. Instead, we start to ask, what is Jesus' list for me now? And I can worry about all that stuff later because it's going to be glory. Look, there's a lot of stuff I want to do. A lot of fun stuff I'd like to do. A lot of stuff that you guys would probably think is weird. I'd love to learn Latin. You'd probably think that's really odd, right? I would. But I'm not taking the time to do it. You know why? don't think it's important for right now. So there's an issue of priority. That when you think about the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that when you go back to Revelation chapter 21, and, and we see the new Jerusalem come down, The new heavens and the new earth come down and you start to realize all of what God is doing there. You realize that for us, a lot of the longing and the desire and the passion that we have doesn't have to be fulfilled now, but it's a longing for eternity. And we can put off until then and instead focus on what does he want us to do now. That should be the question that we ask. See, in Revelation 21, he says, This, I saw the new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. You see, that's what it's all about. That when God created in the garden, You had a union of heaven and earth that God's dwelling and man's dwelling was together united to where God walked with him and that we see it then ripped apart and that through through as we watch through the scriptures there's these points where then heaven and God are is separated from earth and the world and we see these points of intersection at the temple where people are able to enter into God's presence And when he says there's a time coming when this will then be restored and be brought back into union the way that it's supposed to so that God will dwell with his people. You see, that's what it's about. It isn't about getting you to heaven. It's about us being there as his people in this restored heavens and earth that we might worship him and that we might live out exactly what he wants us to. You see, like I I said, that when you think of creation, you think of it like a seed, how many people did he make? Two. Is that all he wanted? No, he wanted a bunch, right? So he told them, but he needed at least two, right? I don't need to do the biology for you. He needed two, a man and a woman, in order to start making more humans. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You see, he planted a seed, and you can see in so many different ways there was a garden, but what his intention is is for that garden to encompass the earth as a garden city. And for those two people to multiply into people that cover the earth and put God on display as image bearers. And that seed grows into that tree, if you will, by the end of the story. You see, if you, I just want you to for a second imagine what it's going to be like to be in the new heavens and the new earth. 
If you're lonely, there's going to be perfect relationships. Do you ever long to be able to spend more time with people? Man, I do. There's all kinds of people I would love to spend more time with, and I just, I just don't have enough time. When you have eternity, do you have enough time? We'll be able to sit together, any one of us. We could sit together for 100 years if we felt like it and just talk and talk about Jesus. And we're not going to feel like any, oh, no, you know, got to go. 100 years is almost up. Got to get on to my next appointment. Right? You think about how much time drives our lives. Time in the short term. Every day I got appointments. I got places I got to be. But time also not just in the daily but in the, the yearly and in the life. We all live with a deadline, literally. And that deadline drives so much of our life. How different would we live if we realized there's no deadline? We have, Jesus says, you have eternal life now. We'll just transition at some point. You think about in that day, if, if you're brokenhearted, there's going to be a day when you're going to have a warm, full heart. You will no longer be brokenhearted. If you're sad, you're going to be comforted. If you're excited, you're going to be even 100 times more excited when you get there. Right? It doesn't matter. He is going to bring full satisfaction. And the amazing thing to me as I look at this and I think about new is that in general when we think about the end, it's like this fuzzy, cloudy, ethereal, you know, maybe harps, uh, you know, whatever that thing is. And instead what we see in the scripture is a very Forgive the term, ordinary world. Ordinary in the sense of we're people and we're living together on an earth with all the same stuff except for made better. Right? People ask me, well, do you think there'll be animals in heaven? And I want to look back at them and go, well, look at the original creation. You think new creation is going to not be as good? Like, it doesn't make any sense. I think there's probably going to be new animals. I don't know. There's going to be all kinds of great stuff. We have no idea what it's going to be like. And you imagine what that would be like to be able to live without that deadline. But here's the greatest part of all of it. Imagine a point where you will no longer be looking at God through the, the glass that, that hides him, but you'll be able to see him face to face. Imagine that day when we'll be able to see him face to face and we'll be able to get down on our knees before him without our knees aching and hurting from the arthritis in them. Right? We'll be able to get down on our knees and praise him. You see, all of the inheritance, all of the wonderful reality of the new heavens and the new earth, there's one thing that's the most important of all of it, and that is that we get God. See, in Romans 8, what do you say? We're waiting for our adoption as sons. Right? That's the thing we eagerly wait for is a day that we will be fully adopted, right? It's not like he's going to let us go, but there's a day we just know where it hasn't kind of all come to conclusion yet, and we can't wait for that day when he brings it all to conclusion. So now we live as the church, and this is the way I like to think of it, is that as the church, we live as little outposts of what it's going to be like. You think of like the frontier and that there were outposts, there were little forts, that within that, there was, in a sense, civilization and outside, you know, you got bears and all kinds of crazy stuff going on, right? But inside, it was different. And that's the way the church is, is that it, all the crazy stuff that might be going on outside in the world, that we are to inside these little outposts that he's placed around the earth 
We are to be there to put on display something different. And then we're to plant new outposts and more outposts, right? That's the time that we live in now. Now, it's important in all this, as we come to a conclusion, that we just keep life in perspective. Paul already said it in Romans chapter 8. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 4. For the sake of time, we're not going to go all the way through that. But you read 2 Corinthians 4. He says this. He says, for this, and think about what Paul went through. Persecution, beatings, all kinds of stuff. And this is what he says. For this, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this light momentary affliction. That's a different perspective, isn't it? You look at the hardest stuff that you've been through this year, and Paul says, no offense, but it's light and momentary. In comparison, this is what he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. You see, that, that's where we're headed. There's an eternal weight of glory in these things that, that weigh on us, these, these things that seem so important now. He says, those are just light momentary afflictions. I'm headed to a place where we're headed to a place where all of that is going to look right. Do you remember this past summer when we were going through Ecclesiastes? Chris Hayes showed us a picture, and he said, this is often what life looks like. He says, it, it looks like this, right? You guys remember this? And here's the great thing is that life sometimes looks like that, but show the next slide. The thing is, we know that's what it really looks like. You see, do you want to live knowing that that's what it really looks like and not that squiggly mess, even though it looks that way, right? And people are going to tell you, no, it, it looks it's such a mess. You don't understand all this stuff. No, I do understand all this stuff, but I still know that it's going to be beautiful. And I still know that that's what he's doing That's the perspective he wants us to keep. You see, do you live as if this world is all that there is? Do you live as if your current body is all that you're ever going to have? Do you live as if this life is all you have? Or do you live as if there's a future perfect life coming? It changes everything. Brings me back to a guy that starts the story, a guy named Abraham. It says in Hebrews 11, you see, Abraham... Guy's 70 years old, living in kind of one of the best areas to live at the time. He's living in Mesopotamia. And God says, Abram was his name at the time before he changed his name, right? And he says, Abram, I want you to leave. And I want you to go to this other land, and it's going to be really tough, and you're going to live in tents, and it's just going to be pretty rough. Abram says, all right, I'm going to go. And he goes, and it's a struggle, and it's suffering, and you see all that. Now, why would Abraham do that? Why would Abraham give up all this stuff that he had in order to go do all that? In Hebrews 11, it tells us why. It says, Hebrews 11, verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. You see, he knew that this life wasn't all that there was. He knew that the city that he lived in wasn't the glorious city. He knew that there was a city coming that God was building it, and by faith he said, I'm going to pursue that. And I want to ask you, what is it that you're supposed to be pursuing that you will only do knowing that there's a city whose designer and builder is God? You see, I really believe that each one of you, there's something that you know that you're supposed to do. There's some of you that are here that you know you're supposed to submit to Jesus as king, that you've been fighting him, you've been making up all kinds of excuses, and you know that's what you're supposed to do. 
Believe the end of the story and do it. There's some of you that you're supposed to do something that's crazy. There's some of you that are supposed to do something that's small. But you know what it is. God is calling you to do something. Right? We, we talk about all sorts of things. We're, we're going to, as, as we end the service here in a minute, we're going to bring up some people that are, have been and are going to the ends of the earth because there are people that haven't heard. There's people that need to know the message. I'm not saying all of you should do that, but I think some of you should do that. And I don't care what stage of life you're at. Abraham was 70 when God called him to go. God can use you no matter where you're at. He may be calling you just to go ask for forgiveness from one of your family members to make reconciliation to be at peace with somebody. It may not be that he wants you to go to the other ends of the earth. It may be that he wants you to share with your neighbor. Right? The way that we do all of these things is by knowing that there is a city whose founder, whose designer is God. Changes everything. Isn't it a glorious end of the story? I can't wait. I, I could go on and on talking about it, but I'm done. I'm out of my time, so we're going to end it there. Let me pray. God, thank you for this glorious story which is the greatest story ever told. Thank you for making us a part of it. God, I'm just amazed that you have chosen us. You've chosen the weak, the poor. You've grabbed a hold of us and in our weakness have put yourself on display. You have shown your strength through us. We are just clay vessels. And you fill us up with your glory and you shine through us. It's such a privilege. God, help us remember the future. Every day, Lord, the world pushes in on us. We want to remember what it is that you are going to do. Help us remember that. We pray in the name of our great Savior, Jesus. Amen.